Section 20 of the Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9. Consolidation and Unity of the English People under the Kings, Chiefly of Wessex, the Northmen in England. Part 1. During the years which saw these great changes on the continent, the establishment, the glory, and the break-up of the Frank Empire, the English nation, through a history outwardly as turbulent and confused as that of the continent, was slowly but distinctly becoming one, and preparing to endure one of the severest trials which can come upon a people, that of foreign conquest and foreign conquest twice repeated within half a century. The progress of consolidation which was going on from the 8th to the 10th century in what were to be separate states on the continent, in the Scandinavian and Slavonic countries and in Hungary, as well as in Gaul and Germany, was going on steadily and visibly, though with frequent interruptions, in England, and the process is not difficult to trace. The bands or tribes or leagues or settlements which in the preceding centuries had gradually become confluent, first in larger or smaller districts, and then in separate kingdoms, the so-called heptarchy, had come through war or agreement to acknowledge the superiority of one or other of the kingdoms, and the overlordship, temporary or hereditary, of its king. This overlordship, which was sometimes but not always expressed by the term Bretwalda, after being won and held by Oswald of Northumbria, and still more strongly by Offa of the great English Midland Mercia, finally passed to the kings of the line of Cerdic, the kings of southwestern Wessex. Roughly speaking, the end of the 7th century, the time of the first Frank mayors of the palace, is the time of the predominance of Northumberland. The 8th, the age of Charles Martel, Pippin, and Pippin's great son, is that of the superiority of Mercia. The ninth, the age of the Carolingians, is that of the superiority of Wessex. And with Wessex and Cerdic's house it remained. Egbert of Wessex, during the days of office power, had, like other English princes, found refuge for thirteen years from the dangerous king of Mercia at the court of Charles the Great. In that school of statesmanship, of war, and of awakening intellectual activity, he saw and probably learned much, and he forms an important link between England and the continent. On the death of Offa, he returned to England and was chosen King of Wessex. Egbert became king in England a year or two after the great Frank emperor had been crowned at Rome. Egbert represents the beginning in England of that new state of things, the advance from the old-fashioned barbarism of the Merovingian and early Anglo-Saxon times, which on the continent is represented by the ideas, the aims, and the achievements of the great Frank emperor. In the course of his long reign of nearly forty years from 802 to 839, Egbert established his supremacy over the other English kingdoms, which in the case of Mercia and Northumbria retained their subject kings. He was not only king of the West Saxons, but king of the English, 
as Charles was king of the Franks, having kings as well as dukes under him, and the idea of the unity of the English nation and the English kingdom, to which Egbert first gave expression, was never again to be lost. Thus left to itself, unaffected by the political shocks and rearrangements of the continent, and but partially influenced by the developments there of social ideas and forms, the nation which had now become English gradually worked out its own union, its own institutions, and its own character. Its society rested on the class distinctions in one shape or another common to all the Teutonic races, except perhaps the Franks, the nobles, the freemen, free but not noble, and the large and vaguely determined class of the half-free or unfree, whether farmer, tenant, dependent, laborer, serf, or slave, bound to the land or bound to the household. The earls, the churls, and lurts of the laws of Kent, the Edelingi, Freelingi, and Lazi of the Saxons of the continent, the nobiles, the ingenui, and liti of the capitularies. These classes are distinctly marked, as in the Teutonic laws, by the difference of their vergilt, or the fixed compensation payable for personal injury or death. Its land tenure grew out of the old Teutonic system in which a community, usually allied in kinship, had its defined territory, its mark, or afterwards in the German lands its gau, in which the land in the first instance, the public land of the community, and in larger or smaller portions of it long remaining so, became in other portions more or less absolutely appropriated to persons, and then to families, appropriated by early occupation, by clearing and building, by grant, by custom, by violence. The tendency to absolute ownership is a natural and strong one, and it would be increased when a tribe became part of an army, conquering and settling. Among the English, the traces of the old Mark system were seen in the Folkland, the public land of the township, used in common or rented by individuals, but not alienated. But besides this, there was the estate of private and inherited property, held by public witness, the Ethel, afterwards called the Elodial land. And there was also the land, carved originally out of the public estate, and held by written charter, the Bachland, but soon confused with or becoming equivalent to the Elodial portion, the patrimony and heritage. The political center was the king, the necessity in the first instance of war and conquest in each original division of the new settlers, but a necessity heartily and readily adopted in peace, the uncertain and fitful peace of those days, as thoroughly congenial to the Teutonic spirit, the king of the men, the folk, to whom as a community the land belonged. The king had his special companions, his friends, thanes, ministers, loaf-eaters, bound to his person by benefits and privileges, and growing by degrees into a formally recognized class of nobility, which at length overshadowed the older nobles who were noble by race and blood. The larger divisions of the land had their governors, Earl Dorman, taken from local potentates, or from the king's companions or his kinsmen. Besides these, another class of persons gradually grew up, 
bound to the king or to other chiefs by a voluntary and formal tie of personal allegiance. Those who had, according to the usage of the time, commended themselves to a lord as his men, and to whom the lord gave protection in return for service. With these high persons, according to their personal qualities, more than by any definite rules, lay the power of government and the impulse to action. But as in all the German nations of the time, power was habitually exercised very much in public. The king or ruler was continually and periodically face to face with assemblies, more or less large, of his people, to whose approval he appealed in legislation and policy, and whose concurrence and support he really needed. The public assembly, including all freemen, if not also some portion of the only half-free class below them, and having at its head the chief and most venerable persons of the community, whether kingdom, shire, or township, was the place where public matters were heard and opinion, however rudely and imperfectly, was yet expressed. This institution of the public assembly under different names, mall, thing, moot, in Latin, placitum, accompanies everywhere the advance and settlement of the tribes of the German stock, whether the Goths in Spain, the Franks in Gaul, the Lombards in Italy, or the Saxons and Angles in Britain. As the kingdom enlarged and compassed, the character of the central assembly necessarily altered. Even if all freemen might come to it, all could not. It became, without purpose or rule, a more selected and representative body, representative not by design or election, but the nature of the case. In addition to this, perhaps growing out of it, there was the assembly of the wise, a king's council of those whose place made them his natural counsellors, and the people's spokesmen, bishops, earldormen, king's thanes, attended, it might be, on great occasions by larger gatherings of freemen or warriors on the spot. Meanwhile, the local assemblies remained. The folk moot was left to the shire. The Witena Gamot was gathered round the king. All great public transactions, such as the election or acceptance of a king, made in the first instance by the select Witan, was also witnessed and approved by some kind of general assembly of the nation. The legislation and charters of the king, ostensibly, often really, the personal acts of the king, bear on their face the concurrence of the Witan, and our documentary evidence exhibits the chief men of the nation in general as parties, more or less really, according to the infinite variations of character and circumstances, to all the acts of government, administration, and policy. In indistinct and ill-defined forms, the elements of the various constitutional arrangements which were to be feudalism or popular government, monarchy, personal or parliamentary, were all present. But none in that age of confused and uncertain beginnings had assumed a full-grown and consistent shape. The power of the king was great and increasing, yet it grew side by side with great personal freedom and strongly marked personal rights all round him, and with great weight and great power supposed to exist in high bodies and assemblies with which he had to deal. The relation of lord and man or vassal was increasing, 
the king could add to its gifts of land, benefices, but the king was still thought of as the king of the people and not as the owner of the land, though the disposer of the public part of it, the folkland. It lay in the course of events what these elements were to work out and how they were to affect and be affected by the character of the nation. For a long time two counter-processes went on, the amalgamation of distinct national divisions with their various forms of power and rule under strong kings, and then the loosening of the new fabric under weak ones. It was what went on under the Frank kings on the continent, and Milton compares these tribal strifes to the wars between kites and crows. But in these strifes and trials of strength lay the process and discipline by which, in those rude conditions of society, a nation learned the necessity of becoming one. But just as the Anglo-Saxon settlements were beginning to coalesce into one kingdom, a new form of trial was coming on them. A terrible enemy broke in from without. In common with the rest of Western Europe, England was assailed on all sides by the fleets of the Norse sea rovers. Their first appearance in England is chronicled in the year 787, when the crews of three strange pirate barks, rovers from the north, slew a king's officer who tried to seize them. It was the threatening thunder shower which announced the most fearful and prolonged storm, a storm which tried to the utmost the force and endurance of the English race. It burst at once on the continent and on England. The Northmen, who in the weakness and divisions of the Frank Empire had learned to use the great rivers of Germany and Gaul as highways, and who in the middle of the ninth century were burning or pillaging their most flourishing cities, had also learned the way to England. Had vexed the last years of Egbert, and under his son Aethelwulf, had stormed and plundered Canterbury and London. In the year 855, the year in which Bjorn Ironsides is said to have established a permanent military post on the Seine, the Danes, who had hitherto landed, plundered, and sailed away, now for the first time wintered in Kent. They began to settle, and from their settlements to cooperate with their countrymen from the sea. It was the Anglo-Saxon invasion over again, with its stages of wide and desolating rapine, and then of occupation and encroachment by heathen barbarians in a Christian land. The resistance was obstinate and persevering. Yet at one time it appeared as if resistance would be in vain. Within a hundred years after their first appearance, the Danes seemed master in the north and east. The bulwark of English power had fallen before them when the young king of Wessex, Alfred, 871 to 901, was driven into the marshes, the water fastnesses of Somerset. It seemed as if the civilization and Christianity of England were to perish. The heathen advance was stayed, and the fortunes of the English race were saved by Alfred's victory on the edge of the Wiltshire Downs at Eddington. But though the Danes were for the moment checked and humbled, Alfred had to submit to the hard condition of allowing them to settle in the largest half of England. By the agreement and partition of Wedmore, 878, Guthrum, their leader, acknowledged Alfred's supremacy, 
and he and his chiefs received baptism. But the land was divided by the line of Watling Street, running with an outward curve from the Thames and the sea to Shrewsbury, and all outside of it to the northeast became Danelagu, the land of the Danish law. Essex and East Anglia and Northumbria and half of the Midland Mercia. The Danes were kept out of Wessex and the other half of Mercia, including London, and these were knit together the more closely by the presence of their restless foe. In this refuge and core of English feeling, Alfred laid the foundations of a policy of recovery. Danish attacks from within and from abroad did not cease with the Peace of Wedmore. The weight of their visitations fell alternately on England and France. The Peace of Wedmore was followed by more systematic and determined war in the north of Gaul, on the Scheldt, the Somme, and the Seine. Two years after, in 880, the Northmen revenged their defeat in the Ardennes from the German King Louis by a great overthrow and slaughter of the Saxon nobles at Lüneburg. Four years later, in 882, in spite of the valor of another Louis, the West Frank king, the hero of the Ludwigslied, already mentioned, they were ravaging the north of Gaul from Amiens and Arras to Soissons and Reims, and while Alfred was comparatively at peace, the great siege of Paris was going on, in which Count Odo's heroic defense laid the foundation of the fortunes of the Capetian house. Again, the great defeat of the Danes on the deal near Louvain by Charles's successor Arnulf in 891 threw them once more on England to prove by a harassing and perplexing warfare Alfred's great qualities, his promptitude, his skill, his vigor, his indefatigable rapidity of movement. But by patient resolution, Alfred's successors up to King Edgar, 959 to 975, were able gradually to bring under subjection, more or less complete, the Danish settlements in England, while assailants from abroad were kept at bay by vigorous and persistent fighting. The Danish invasions, though mischievous and cruel, disturbed but did not arrest the national growth. It is indeed remarkable how readily the Danish newcomers, after a generation or two, became fused with the English stock how readily they received the English religion and accepted the English speech. When once settled down in peace, the adventurous intruders were gradually tamed among the English population round them and became in England undistinguishable from Englishmen, except as English provinces were distinguished from one another. End of section 20